what value should we put on being polite? How important is it to be civil? And alternatively, how can civility and politeness and niceness be used to avoid real conversations, to avoid genuine disagreement, to avoid constructive dialogue and exchange? Can civility and politeness be a way to dodge confrontation, to avoid discomfort, and in a way to disrespect the person we're speaking to by allowing their bullshit to fly when really, if we respected them, we wouldn't? It's time for us to start practicing a little more than we do, the type of conversation that isn't banally civil and polite, nor overtly hostile, a conversation that stretches us, that challenges us, and that feels occasionally just a little, yes, uncomfortable. Today on the show, where do you even start with Scott Barry Kaufman? Uh, he has the number one psychology podcast in the world. It's called, uh, believe it or not, The Psychology Podcast. So uh, you can tell right there in the name that it's a, a podcast and it's about psychology. And then there's a definite article, The Psychology Podcast. Scott is fantastic. Uh, I've heard him around the traps a great deal because he's a terrific popularizer of science, but he's no lightweight uh, hackish popularizer. He is known in the psychology community, in the intellectual community, as someone who's done groundbreaking work on redefining intelligence. He has a PhD in cognitive psychology from Yale. He's the author of a number of books, one called Wired to Create, Unraveling the Mysteries of the Creative Mind, Discover the 10 Things Great Artists, Writers, and Innovators Do Differently. Another one called Ungifted, Intelligence Redefined. Cognitive psychologist Scott Barry Kaufman offers a new way of looking at intelligence, uh, the subtitle being The Truth About Talent, Practice, Creativity, and the Many Paths to Greatness. His most recent book is called Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization. He's, I mean, this conversation could have gone in a million different ways. And as you will hear, we, uh, we sort of bump and nudge and probe at each other's interesting little uh, tidbits and nooks. But really, there are an infinite number of things that I would have liked to ask Scott about that I didn't have time to, like what is consciousness and why are we uh, conscious in the first place and what is self-awareness and what is creativity. I hope to explore some of that perhaps on a future episode of the, of the show uh, because this is really just a, an early, early taste that I hope you will find as brain-tickling as I did into the mind of Scott Barry Kaufman. the worst though that happened to me on my birthday <clears throat> really mm, yeah yeah that happened to me on my last birthday my dad came in from philadelphia we had this big dinner and i was spent 80 percent of it in the bathroom yeah <laughs> yeah <clears throat> tmi not good scott tmi i know i know well i don't know I, we haven't started <laughs> the conversation yet have we? <laughs> oh i'm recording already this is going in for sure your explosive diarrhea is definitely going to make it into the final cut <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, i don't know if you're serious or not <laughs> me neither i mean i am recording it it's all up to my producer out of my hands now uh can you do me a favor and uh do you have like a voice memos on your phone or something that you can do a backup recording of your side oh i can do better than that i can <clears throat> i'll bet you I can have, i have this really uh 
the garage band. Well, let me open that. Right. So it'll be uh, crystal clear. Um, now I notice there's no video. That's so so. No. Uh, I'm so used to like. Uh, I know. Seeing a person, you're you're totally okay with not with us not seeing each other. I'm totally okay with it. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. I I once read that uh, that Terry Gross, you know, who does Fresh Air, mm-hmm. uh, only does. It, like never wants to see the face of the person she's talking to. So even when they get people into her studio, she puts them in another studio where they can't see each other. Is it like a implicit bias? I think so. It's got something to do with the fact that the, the listener is only getting the sound. So mm-hmm. like all of those kind of visual cues that you would normally take from a conversation somehow sort of impede the conversation. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, as a sort of radio person, I quite like well, I surely don't want you to be influenced by my dashing good looks. That's right. It'll be very distracting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also, the fact that every time you speak, you wave your arms about and uh, and yeah. pull funny faces and try to distract awkward, me from my train of thought. Awkward tick. It's yeah, it's exactly awkward. that's right. I didn't know you noticed still, that. You crazy man. Uh, okay. I'm recording. I'm recording on my uh, thing. Great. Yeah. Good. Um, well, I was just going to say... Um, I was ta- I was thinking of you the other day because I was on my radio show and I had a caller call in and he was ta- just talking about how dreadful the world is and how everything is awful and Ukraine and uh, one of Australia's greatest sporting legends just died of a sudden heart attack at the age of 52 uh, and there are floods in Australia and, you know, the end of the pandemic and everyone. And I was just like, I had to channel my inner Stephen Pinker and kind of <laughs> be like... You know what? Actually, if you actually look at it and you actually look at the, you know, the statistics, then on all of the measures that we would care about, uh, violence, poverty, disease, they're all down globally. There have been massive edu- increases in education, in lifespan, in the amount of leisure time that we've got. We are safer than we've ever been. And he was like, yeah, but it doesn't make us happy. And I thought, hmm, I'll bet Scott's got some ideas about why why aren't we happy scott well i think it's because we're we're trying to chase happiness i mean that's that's like the biggest paradox of them all is we're so we think that something's wrong with us when we're not feeling happy and so then we're like oh my god we got to do something right now to get us happy and then all the things we do to get happy we make us unhappy like what Mm, yeah well there's various things that we can be solving for right um, so solving for happiness means like you're trying to solve for how can I get back good feelings? Um, if you're solving for meaning, it's, well, what can I do in my life that will uh, make me feel like it's meaningful, that that there's that it's worth it, that there's something, there's that things are connected, there's a coherency there. Um, if you solve for experiences, some people want to live their life solving for um, uh, just an experientially rich life. And so they're trying to, they're jumping out of airplanes. They're doing all weird, sort of weird sexual positions, <laughs> whatever. Um, <laughs> we you know, started the point- with explosive diarrhea. <laughs> now we're on to tantric sexual positions. Yeah. Scott, yeah. you're bringing well, it that's today. Part of the, well, I think it's part of living an experientially rich life, quite frankly. The diarrhea um, or the sex? No, 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 the latter. Well, okay, I mean, okay, good. okay. Well, the, the former was a growth experience too, <laughs> I would say. Um, so all of it, all of it, I'm going to say. Um, so it's like, what are you trying to solve for? And so if you're trying to solve for happiness, you might be like, okay, well, if I uh, eat this pizza right now, that's going to make me feel really good <laughs> in the moment. You know, you're tr- if you're trying to solve for happiness to restore that feeling of a good feeling in some way, well, it's really a kind of like a temporary solution. I view meaning 
as a much more sustainable long-term solution and even just uh, experientially rich and complex and challenging things. So I include having difficult conversations as part of living experientially rich life. And I think solving for that um, is is going to lead to more meaning and uh, and in the long run is going to be more sustainable in, in terms of a sense of um, less of a sense of urgency, less of a sense of um, this kind of pressure you put on yourself to be happy because when you're putting yourself, you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself. If you want to be happy all the time, that's a lot of pressure and that mm. is making people so stressed out. <laughs> it's yeah. paradoxical. Yeah. I remember, I, I think it might've been Oliver Berkman who, uh, who I love, yeah, who love said, that, yeah. yeah, he said, he, I, I may be misdributing this to him, but if I am, I'm sure he'll take the compliment because it's a good point that happiness is a little bit like a bar of soap in the shower. Like the more you squeeze it, the, the more likely it is to kind of slip out of your hand and the more elusive it becomes. You have to have a gentle touch with happiness. And in actual fact that happiness, happiness is sort of a byproduct of other pursuits that the pursuit that pursuing happiness directly is uh it's it it's almost like going towards a light that you're never going to be able to approach it's better if you just sort of allow it to arise as a consequence of being useful yeah i think that's that's really correct and uh what's his name anthony bourdain um the chef who Mm. passed away i was watching the documentary about him and i was just so fascinated I believe it was Roadrunner. And there's a, a scene at the end that just really struck me where he's um, in a canoe of some sort in a foreign country. He looks so relaxed and he, he looks around. He's like, huh, I'm happy. And like, it's like, it's like, he's never, he, he very like a, like a huge, like a uh, shock, you know, that like, it wasn't something he forced. Right. It was like, mm. it was a moment. I think happiness are just moments and if you're, you know, you get them and they, they come and they emerge from, from the kind of meaning we put in from, from opportunities that we can get to actually feel whole, to feel relaxed. I mean, there's a lot of things we can do um, where we can increase uh, the likelihood that happiness will emerge. I'm certainly not saying that happiness is a terrible, uh, terrible goal. (laughs) I'm not anti-happiness. I'm not saying, (laughs) oh, you should do everything that'll make you unhappy, but I'm saying, you can do things to increase the chances that you can get into every now and then. That's pretty good life. If every now and then you can get in those states, those moments, even a whole day where you like look around you and you're like, huh, like, wow, like I'm, ha- I'm happy right now. Mm. Look at that. Mm. Look at that. I mean, it's funny you mentioned Bourdain because A, the man killed himself. Exactly. B, exactly. Uh, I know. He, he was a hero of mine and, and I, I actually wrote a little eulogy after he died just saying that just making the point that he had everything that I could ever want in life. I mean, I love to travel. I love food. I love, I loved his, uh, his way with words, his eloquence, uh, his kind of debonair, like Renaissance man, uh, attitude towards everything, his hedonism, his, mm. he, he influenced me a lot in the, in my creative output in, in the sense that he was such a rare, he was such a breath of fresh air in not taking any bullshit and speaking plainly and directly and allowing his sort of sparkle to, to shine brighter than the conformist ways that we're supposed to talk to one another or the polite ways that you're supposed to talk about things. You know, he was a really averse to cliche and to, to conformism. And my point was just that you can have all of that. You can have, you know, a loving partner, you can have a, a, a little daughter, you can have these, you know, first class or business class flights to wherever you want to go in the world, producing your own creative output. 
eating amazing food, meeting amazing people, seeing amazing things. And at the end of the day, all that matters is what's going on between your ears. You can be miserable as a millionaire on a mega yacht and you can be happy in a wheelchair and everything outside is always subject to our grey matters interpretation of it. And his suicide was just a like a such a stark and crushing reminder of of that fact. So how do you avoid that fate? Well, first of all, have, have you met him? No. Did you meet him? They never got a chance no. to, for no. the existence of no. dinner. No, great, great regret. Mm. Um, it's, it's, you're bringing up so many good points. Um, but what was your pointed question? I guess, how do you make sure that what's going on in your life actually has an impact on your subjective sense of happiness? Well, maybe it shouldn't. Maybe that's not it the right way of thinking. It about shouldn't. It. Yeah, that's again, that's putting way too much pressure. Uh, people put so much pressure on themselves. Like, what's my call? Or what's my purpose? What's my purpose? I don't have a purpose. Therefore, my life is meaningless. And I think even just that framing is just like, whoa, way too much pressure, buddy. <laughs> like, you you can have meaning in like just walking by a flower. You can have meaning in being mindful when you're eating your pudding. I don't know. Any kind of food. I don't know why pudding entered my mind. Whatever, you're eating. For our, um, for our English listeners, pudding means, I think, uh, have you noticed that in English? Yeah, that's English, like uh, disgusting, British English, right? It's like, no, no, no. It, black, it means, black pudding is a thing, right? Yeah. That's a thing. But in, in British English, pudding just means anything sweet. So, you know, oh, okay, there you go. Meal, that works. Say, can I that have works. my, can I have my pudding? And like, yeah. But for me, if they're bringing out a, a creme caramel, that's a, it's not a pudding. For me, a pudding is, yeah. <laughs> it yeah. has to be more pudding-like. It has to be a mousse. Anyway, let's not get okay. sidetracked well, by Okay, fair pudding. enough. We, we can get into the nuances of that, but I, but I think uh, let's just pretend that I meant the English definition <laughs> and, <laughs> and proceed from there okay, and proceed from good. there. You know, but this is the thing that I, uh, it's part of, it's, it's my thing, is, is helping people realize that there's so much potential sources of meaning and beauty around them already that already exists. We're so, we're so, we feel this pressure to constantly get new things, uh, new, what is my new purpose or what is one new purchase I could make that, that will make me happy. Well, I'm not going to lie. There are some purchases I make that do make me happy for at least two days. So that's something, but, but in the long term, <laughs> anti-diarrheals, you know, for example. Yeah, oh my God. Of- so, so we, we, we like, I feel like you made the executive decision that we're keeping that beginning in or else you're going to have to edit out like 50% of the yeah, interview. Now, yeah, that's so. right. Yeah. yeah. You're it's just, just like reinforcing it. Oh, you yeah, committed exactly. to it. You that's committed right. to it. I'm you sort committed. of, I'm, I'm stitching the diarrhea through so yeah. many juncture points of the conversation that it will, it will henceforth become impossible for saying. my producer to cut I out. see what you're doing. Like I'm, I'm saying, just embedding it out. Yes, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Ukrainian defensive force just embedding yeah. landmines beyond the front line. Yeah, exactly uh, what I was saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so you can yeah. buy. Yeah. I mean, should we start? Should we get to to Maslow or Mas? Is it Maslow or Maslow? I think it's Maslow. Maslow. I was right yeah. off, off on both counts. Um, mm-hmm. About whom you've basically written an entire entire book. Remind people who he was and what his insight was. So Abraham Maslow was a humanistic psychologist who uh, basically created the the humanistic psychology movement in the 50s and 60s. And there were a bunch of other humanistic psychologists around that time as well that were part of the movement uh, who they all believed in uh, understanding the whole human, uh, not just our naughty bits, but uh, our higher nature. Uh, They felt that psychology prior to that time had focused, uh, had neglected the, the higher nature of humans and focused so much on uh, what we share with other animals 
uh, not necessarily what uniquely human, what is what is human, what is human potential, right? So that's what they're really interested in. And so Abraham Maslow was one of the leaders of that human potential movement in, in that era, which was intimately tied to the hippies, to Esalen Institute, to San Francisco and that whole hippy dippy thing, you know, so all that stuff was part of the zeitgeist. Um, what I'm trying to do is, is carry the baton and, you know, and, uh, I run the center for human potential and I'm trying to, uh, see what a modern day human potential movement could look like. What was his hierarchy of needs? Uh, like personally or his theory? No, his theory. His theory. Gotcha. <laughs> You're, that's a per- personal question about him. <laughs> <laughs> but that time you no. met Maslow, uh, yeah. tell no, us the number truth. One, number one tell was pudding, yeah, pudding, yeah, yeah. emodium. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, some people look, They okay, so some people on the internet have memes right at the bottom for COVID. It was, it was uh, toilet paper. Right. When remember when like COVID started and like no <laughs> yeah. one could find. And this is like if people envisage envisage like the pyramid. If they've never studied uh, you know the psychology, then the Maslow he he has a pyramid like you might have a food yeah. pyramid or something with the you know the the baseline necessities at the bottom and then I suppose the luxuries at the top. Yeah, I wouldn't say luxuries. So uh, self actualization really was the only thing he had there at the top. So uh, the way it's usually depicted is that, yeah, like you said, there's a pyramid, and um, at, at the bottom you have basic need for food, shelter, water, and then uh, above that you have need for connection uh, and belonging. Uh, actually, actually, I, I missed I missed a level. Um, below connection is a need for security, um, feeling like your your environment is safe and secure, and then above that is connection and belonging, and above that is self-esteem, and the esteem needs, he called them the esteem needs, not just self-esteem, but esteem for yourself, but also esteem from others. Um, and then above that was self-actualization, which is becoming all you're uniquely capable of becoming. However, uh, so it turns out no one, he never drew a pyramid. Turns out he never drew a pyramid. There's there's really? nothing in his writings. So I was going through all all his writings. I was like, "Where's the pyramid? <laughs> Where is it?" And uh, he never drew a pyramid. Uh, so huge misconception. I tried to put in in, in my book, and which is why I came up with a new metaphor, which I think is a better hierarchy of needs uh, metaphor than the one that's been going around for like fifty years. Um, but the uh, he very much made it clear that life is not like a video game where you reach a certain level, like need for. Uh, security, and then you you hear some voice from above that's like, "Congrats, you've unlocked family," <laughs> and you mm, like mm. you move up in some sort of way, like some trek up a mountain. I, you know, I, I've I've reconceptualized it as a sailboat, in the sense that you know where life is is to be experienced, not to be climbed, and right. uh, and, and and integrated. You know, like a sailboat that has a really secure foundation of the boat that no holes, the water isn't coming in, but also that opens its sail and uh, explores. Right. But the sailboat needs, so in this metaphor, the, the coherence or the, the stability, the security of the sailboat would be things like security, right? I mean, you need, you still need the bottom bits of the pyramid for the sailboat not to sink. Yes. So the, in the, in the boat, I have uh, the need for security, need for connection and the need for self-esteem. These things, these three things, feed off each other in really, really important ways. They're a system. They're a boat. Um, when you feel like any one of those three is 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 critically low, um, it tends to bring those other two down with it, and mm-hmm. you feel like you're not standing on a on a firm foundation of your being. The three being security, connection, and what self esteem. 
Self-esteem. Let's talk about connection because security is security. Well, we'll get to self-esteem. I think security we can probably park because unless we're listening in a, a situation of dire poverty, in which case, how are you listening mm. to my podcast? Or unless we're in Ukraine or something, most of us have a, a modicum of security in the modern modern world. But what has been upended over the past couple of years with the pandemic so much is is connection and what is also being disrupted by social media and our online lives is is connection. How are we doing on that front? Oh, terrible. Absolutely terrible. There, there, is, uh, there are real crises crises whatever there's a there's a huge crisis of uh of loneliness uh and certain age groups and certain demographics are showing it more you can you can really get to the nuance of it uh research shows that males are uh, like like young adulthood males are very are particularly really 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 lonely it's very hard for them to make friends uh, after a certain age like after 40 um, so they're, they're showing huge, uh, loneliness, but then college students they're you know, regardless of the gender, there's, there's huge anxiety and loneliness. It's very hard for, for college students to have meaningful, uh, connections, uh, with each other. There's a lot of superficial, uh, things going on, you know, like frat parties and stuff, but meaningful connections. Um, and so there, this is a real big problem. And the question is, how can you structure a society uh, in way, in are there societies that that don't show this? And and there are some societies that have been studied, and you try to learn what are the lessons. Well, you know, what are the lessons you can learn? And and what you see in those societies is a there's much less of a focus on social media. I mean, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention social media as a potential. Yeah, problem. no, I definitely want to get to yeah. that. Yep. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And you see a bunch of things. You see more care for the elderly. You see. Uh, you you don't just shut them away, you know. In 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 America, it's like after a certain age, after seventy, it's like you can't find a job anywhere, right? As opposed to be like, oh, seventy. Next- I mean, you know, it's fifty. Yeah. Fifty, yeah, maybe even fifty. Right. Yeah. I mean, like if you're a fifty-four yeah. year old, it's it, it is tough unless you're a senior executive yeah. level. It's uh, it's tough. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. The one of the ways that younger people find connection, talking about that uh, that college cohort, is. Um, you know, if we don't provide some sort of connection, some sense of uh, of fulfillment and like development uh, for that cohort, especially young males, then you do tend to find them ganging together and teaming up and creating their own versions of meaning, which can be unproductive or being taken under the wing of unscrupulous people joining alt-right movements, maybe the far right, maybe the far left, maybe becoming revolutionaries, maybe becoming violent gangs, maybe careening off into drugs. Like what, how, how do you sort of corral that instinct for that craving for connection among young people in productive ways? There are many, many ways of, uh, of, of launching off that question. The, the male specific thing has its own sort of set of that, that's a whole like can of worms, right? That's a whole topic of conversation, uh, which I'm happy to open if you'd like. Yeah, yeah I, love, I love opening cans of worms. That's the point of the show. Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, if I'm going to ever open this can of worms, it's going to be exactly. in your show. It's going right. to be in your show. I want to have a very thoughtful answer to this, um, but it's, uh, you know, it's it's a definitely can of worms. There's, I, I do think identity is important. And I think having a healthy, and I, I've argued for having a healthy pride uh, for your in-group, and I've distinguished that from, uh, narcissistic pride fear in group and that that's that's a topic but i think that part of the loneliness is you know groups of people that 
have feel real difficulty in um, in creating identity for who they are. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, rightly so there's a lot of positive, um, affirmations for identities within the LBT, you know, Q community. I, it's, it's a long alphabet now. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't, I, I just don't have memorized the whole thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't, but, um, in that, my, if you're part just of, as, yeah. as an aside, Scott, my yeah, partner yeah. will like, every time he talks yeah. about anything re- regarding the, the gay community, he'll, he'll literally call it the LGBTQI plus QIA LGBTQIA plus and like I'm like how are you I'm like we're in the kitchen come on you don't have to be using that jargon right here just call them <laughs> just call it gay or queer I or love something that. like I what love are we that. giving a well I just saw the other day I, I saw someone to, like post the, the latest one and it's 40 I think it's like up to 40 letters yeah, now yeah too much we need a catch all yeah. come on I mean I understand that you're all very important little sunflowers in this uh, you know yeah. in this <laughs> in this yeah, world exactly but do we have yeah, to call you out by name it's like instead of saying ladies and gentlemen we, we you know we're going to say andrea and bob and charlie and go through a <laughs> go through a hall full of a thousand people everyone gets their own special little uh, it, it's little it's like tick. no i agree and and i want to make this point thoughtfully and sensitively but i still i do want to make this point you know if you're anywhere in that alphabet now it's almost like um it's like a pre-made identity where you can find meaning right you can say you know it's a sense of pride right it's like i'm the mm. the z <laughs> i don't know if z's yet in the alphabet yeah. alphabet. but it's yeah. like but it's also kind of sending a message in a way where like what if we get to the point where you have ev- literally every letter in the alphabet except for white male <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, do, do, you, do you know what i'm saying it's like it's getting the point yeah. where it's like wait 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 what, what are you saying like just say it you don't like white males <laughs> just say yeah. it and yeah. uh, or you don't like straight i should say cisgender white males i should say cisgender um, yeah and the, i don't think the yeah, white comes in in that particular conjunction no it's just but, cisgender just but, but, cisgender but yeah. i mean they would say of course that it has nothing to do with not liking it's just about you know finding totally. your identity and self-expression in a way that is in a place that is welcoming I, we can get I onto totally, a whole, whole other i totally question. know i totally know what they would say and and i and i don't even think that's wrong i mean i, I can stand i can be on board with exactly that framing i mean i personally think it's wrong because i personally yeah. as someone who's married to another guy i personally mm. have always found it disempowering to be mm. uh to to have to conform to some kind of conception of what gayness is and right. uh and so i i actually i he and i always you know have playful disagreements about about this i think i think in the future in the same way this is a bit of a tangent but in the same way that in the future if there is a world in which we can in which white people can talk about how horrible the n-word is without having to say the the phrase the n-word but actually say the world the word that will be a less racist not a more racist future almost by definition because the word won't have its sting the word won't have its its supernatural power and in the same way a world in which uh, a 15 year old jock at high school can date a girl and then maybe the next year date a guy and there isn't constant like whispering and questioning of like so what are you where are you in the alphabet like what exactly are you will be a less homophobic world i think not a, not more so i would rather lean away from the identity buckets and lean towards a more expansive conception of individualism and sort of common humanity and the sanctity of everybody for whoever they happen to be regardless of what you know label you want to put on them but that's that perhaps that's a conversation for another day or perhaps no, you want to take no. that somewhere too i don't think that's a conversation for another day actually i think uh it's so in line with uh, just something i think of obsessively which is what does true inclusion look like like true inclusion you know where you don't apply principles 
selectively based on your in-group. Um, and, and I think about that so much because I'm, I'm all about having us view each other as a human first before the identity, you know, like leading with that sort of leading with leading with the common humanity. Mm. I'm all about that. I mean, I'm a humanistic psychologist. That's, that's on brand for me <laughs> to say that, <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I try to think of what is true inclusivity and, and something has never sat right with me with the, with the alphabet or with, um, with, 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 it, 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 I've never really been able to articulate quite well. It just doesn't feel like true inclusivity to me. Like a true inclusivity would be, you know, what sits better to me are things like, hey, um, we're having a meeting Friday and I just want, you know, like everyone is welcome here. And just saying that, like, why can't you, like, but instead when you start like singling out the ones that are included, mm. then it, it's just, it's just, you're like, well, you're excluding some people. And then, and then of course they can make the point, well, we've historically been the ones that are excluded, but I don't believe two wrongs ever make a right, you know? So I think right. that um, kind of just, I'd rather just constantly be sending the message to everyone that like, you're all welcome here. And that's it. Right. Like just stop, period, put and, the period and, there. Yeah. <laughs> Do and you know what I mean? If, yeah, totally. Yeah. And if your mindset is one of constantly trying to poke holes in other people's, it like in interpreting their their message in bad faith and poke holes in what they're doing, then no solution will ever be enough. I mean, you could say everyone is welcome here. And then you could say, well, what about people with uh, dual personality disorders? You said every one, like what about people who, or what, you know, you're only talking about homo sapiens, are you? What about my, you know, my ferret or my turtle or something (laughs) who's here, like you're being exclusive, exclusionary and some, like you'll, you're always going to be able to fault someone if you're look if you're if your mode of interacting with the world is to is to find is to pick out faults so i almost feel like it's a futile it's fundamentally a futile mission and i wonder whether whether you have thoughts about that as well the fulfillment that can come from a certain grace well i've i personally have found that it's it's possible um i like i run a i run a transcend course i've taught in colleges some of the I've taught at the probably the most woke college in the world, um, and uh, and and the reason why I think it works it is it, it it's the spirit you bring to the table. You know, I make it very clear on the first class, on the first day of class. You know, I'm here to help each of you self actualize in your own way. That's my intention, and in order to do that, I want to understand you as a unique human with your own unique, full human complex complexity. Like to me, that's what's really interesting to me is the full human complexity, not just the singular identity that's one part of you, and and just setting that tone. Like you're all welcome here, and, and you're all your each of your individual self actualizing journeys are welcome here. It 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 shifts the focus from well, you, okay, we have this group in the corner here. Okay, all the LBT people are on the far right here. The far left are all is the football team. <laughs> yeah. No. No, what it does is it just shifts the focus in a way that no one gets defensive with that because at the end of the day, that's what individuals want, you know, like that's what he, each human wants, you know. What is exactly? What is it that what the human they, wants? What do they want? Yeah. They want to actualize their potential. I mean, they want to actualize their unique creative potential. They want to feel like they matter. I mean, the the, the need to matter is what we're seeing so much underneath uh, so much of the conflict we see everywhere we turn our heads these days. And people are acting as though um, their uh, unique vulnerabilities are the the most important vulnerabilities in the world. So we've created kind of a hierarchy of suffering when underneath it all are just people with uh, severely deficient feelings of the need to matter, um, trying to have a voice. 
Right. Yeah, I call it the oppression Olympics. Like, mm, you know, yeah, everyone's yeah. competing for how how oppressed they are or how wronged they've been or what group they can associate themselves with that has been persecuted. You know, it's the easiest move in the world for me to slough off my white cis male cloak and embrace my uh, grandson of Holocaust surviving Jews and, uh, you know, member of proud member of the LGBTQIA plus community cloak. Mm. And that suddenly gets me cred, right? Because I now I belong to a couple of oppressed communities. So I can, I can sort of show those flashcards that give me the right to to speak, which is completely noxious because my white maleness should not undermine my sanctity as a human being any more than my huh. being a gay Jew buys it for me. Um, That's exactly right. It's the vict- I call it the victimhood Olympics, which is very up the alley of what yeah. you were saying as well. But that and the problem with that clearly is that when when you start competing in that Olympics, uh, there's only one winner, and just like the Olympics, right? It's, a, it's suddenly a competition and. That is not productive. <laughs> there are more productive ways of engaging with uh, your fellow human that has their own unique set of sufferings and things they they feel victimhood over. I I am constantly just in awe and amazement at watching battles unfold on Twitter. <laughs> where, yeah, where, are there yeah, more? I mean, yeah. what are if there are more productive ways? They must be more elusive. Otherwise, people wouldn't be behaving the way they are. Elusive. Well, there's like there's more def- difficult to find, right? I mean, why are people doing it if if it weren't scratching an itch? Well, people are definitely suffering, and I, I don't want to uh, diminish that. Um, and when you're in the state of deprivation, this is what I read about, and uh, you know, kind of just the the whole theory that um, that Maslow talked about, really talking about the difference between deficiency motivation and growth motivation. Um, they're two completely different realms of human existence. So many of us are caught in the um, the deficiency trap, where um, it's so hard for us to to feel or see a way out or to call ourselves out of it because that system of of, of self esteem, connection, and security are so low that we're just fighting to just get those to baseline. And when you're in that mindset, uh, you're not thinking about engaging someone for the purpose of growth. It's almost like growth is a luxury at that point. So it makes sense from a, a hierarchical need structure of 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 uh, of human motivations. Mm. That's interesting. I'm just trying to. Doesn't mean we can't. Doesn't yeah. mean we can't call our way out or or to shift the focus to growth. I mean, is that I'm trying to think. I'm trying to. I'm just interrogating internally now what it feels like when I'm owning someone on Twitter. Yeah. versus what it feels like when I'm doing something that is closer to the pursuit of, you know, the self-actualization of humankind. And the latter is harder, less instantly gratifying, perhaps more fulfilling in the long run. But it is fun to dunk on someone on Twitter too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's also fun to eat uh, fatty foods, you know, pizza. Like, you know, like, there are a lot of things that are, that are definitely uh, immediately fun. Um, right. And and more rewarding in the moment, uh, it, and I and I see that too. On when I'm on social media, if I anytime I try to pull a well on the one hand and uh, on the other hand, it's like four <laughs> likes. But then if I like, I'm feeling particularly grumpy, and I'm like, 
that person is a whack ass motherfucker. People are like five thousand likes. Wow, yeah, go Scott. You know, it's like so. It's true. I mean, it's true. I want to but... see that tweet of yours. I want to see <laughs> that person's Scott a whack ass motherfucker. Yeah, exactly. Where's that I, one? The whack ass you know, motherfucker tweet. That happened to me a couple months ago. I, I let I let something slip. Uh, you know, someone just really pissed me off. But the funny thing about that story is you were involved in that in, in exactly oh, really? that moment. Yeah, yeah, you were in exactly that moment. Um, Brett Weinstein uh, was criticizing your tweet when you when you were looking into the science of and you really I really appreciated the thoughtfulness of how you uh, contacted a, a leading cardiologist and you had this very thoughtful thread. And then yeah, he retweeted thanks. something like this guy's part of, again, another person who's a smart person who went to the dark side or something. And I went and I just I lost it. It's so funny because you're the one involved <laughs> in this. Yeah. I, I don't know if you saw, <laughs> I, but I responded to Brett. I really lost it. Now that it. you, um, I had forgotten about that. But now, I mean, yeah. that whole period is needless yeah. to say, a, a, a blur of tweets. Uh, you wanted to, uh, launch, you wanted okay. to repress that <laughs> memory. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> but I it upset really me at a very things. deep level because I really appreciate people who take take the time to uh, look at multiple sides and to consult an expert and to try to share knowledge. So that really upset me that he was diminishing that. And I, and I, I, my, my normal sort of gates of on the one hand, on the other hand mm. kind of went off. It was 10 PM at night as well. I've tried to maybe now have a rule not to tweet after 7 PM <laughs> because, because you know, the inhibitions lower and I kind of regret the way I, I responded to Brett and, and, and Brett responded to like, well, that was entirely out of character for you, <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, well, good." Yeah. I mean, but your character yeah. is so pol so so en endlessly, infinitely polite, uh, Scott. That mm. I think if you yeah, dial yeah. up your rudeness by ten percent, that's still uh, <laughs> that's it's still okay. I didn't get canceled. More polite. Brett didn't than... cancel me, so that's good. <laughs> also, it is just frustrating when people have such self certainty about their own point of view. Like you know, people yeah. picking apart the opinion and for, if people aren't aware of the backstory here i was on joe rogan's show joe and i got into a dispute about whether or not the rate of uh, heart inflammation from getting the vaccine <clears throat> is higher or lower than the rate of heart inflammation from getting COVID itself uh brett weinstein is obviously uh, highly skeptical of vaccines and uh, a, a big pusher of misinformation about uh, the pandemic and about vaccines so I followed up because I'm, I'm not a scientist. So I followed up with the the leading. I mean, I called like the Cardiology Institute, not the Vaccine Institute of Australia or something, but the Cardiology mm. Institute of Australia, just to get the actual facts about the heart impacts of the vaccine versus COVID. Did a half hour interview with this guy just to and so for me, that's kind of the end of it from my point of view. Like if if a, if a leading cardiologist who represents the mainstream bulk of scientific opinion on the matter. Uh, and is most is best informed about the latest science of it. I'm just not going to do my own research, so to speak, beyond that. Like I, I'm not going to be digging. I don't know, and none of us knows unless we're trained academic experts how to pass the the data of one paper versus another paper. So I think it's ridiculous that Twitter is so awash with people like sharing, you know, pre-publication, you know, pre-peer reviewed papers about ivermectin or something without the humility to understand that they don't understand really the context into which that paper is dropping the other papers you know you have to rely on experts so the idea that i would go to the expert do a twitter thread simply outlining what the expert had said and then close the book on it and then people pop up and go yeah but how do you know that blah 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 study from june like 2020 oh i know i'm like i don't fucking know that but how do you know 
Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. All yeah. I know is that I'm the one with some epistemic humility here, and you're mouthing off like a jackass as if you know everything and you're impervious to, to further correction. Yeah, um, I have anyway. a lot of thoughts about that. Uh, one is that that me that whole Twitter thing and me losing it actually led to this us getting to talk to each other and led to me mm. reaching out to you, <laughs> led to this podcast chat. So I, I don't regret it. Um, yeah, you know, good. it led, led exactly. to this it led go. to this great connection here, right? Um, yeah. You know, and uh, and uh, looking forward to having you in my podcast as well. Um, yeah, but what yeah, I liked what, what that moment did for me is I really I, I thought to myself I really like that person's way of being that person being you i really liked that and it, it resonated with my own sort of way of being i i also i reached out to eric topol uh, i did something similar and i invited mm. him to be on my podcast and that 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 episode has been released recently and has been awesome and and that was a really great chat and i um i mean i wasn't like over appeasing i asked him some tough questions and and the way he answered them is exactly how a scientist should answer them you know like there's a way that a scientist answers questions right an expert in a field uh, you know you know the true experts when they're not like um i know the secret truth that no one else knows mm. that's not usually how the real expert talks mm. Yes, and the real expert doesn't hint darkly at things that they're not suggesting, but that uh, you might be able to read between the lines right. and imply. Yeah. You know, like yeah. Robert Malone <laughs> did yeah. on yeah. Joe Rogan's yeah. show. Like I can, I, I can just tell a, a hack. I'm sorry, I can smell it. I've interviewed too many people, and re mm. as you say, real scientists don't talk. They don't hint at things. You know, they'll, they're very rational and they'll qualify things and they'll say, well, we don't know this, we don't know that. But they won't say, well, you know, I'm not saying, but you might want to say that bloody blah behind the scenes. Like, that's not a scientist. And they tend to also do the one on the one hand, on the other hand things. And that's a that's a tell. That's a tell that you're actually a scientist mm. <laughs> or a mm. scholar. Even just like, look, I think we're really losing the scholarly mindset in the world. Uh, not just scientist mindset, but there's a certain like scholarly, and I know that's a really truly nerdy thing to say, right? Like mm. an almost like uh, academic elitist sort of thing to say. But I think anyone, if they want to have that mindset, you know, there's a, there's a way of thinking where you're interested in the truth, you're interested in integrating multiple sources, as many data points as possible to kind of see what that integration looks like. Th that's a certain scholarly mindset. I don't, th I think we've lost that. I don't know if we ever Has had it. it have we lost it partly because of the democratization of information? I mean, I'm trying to grapple with this whole concept of doing your own research and being skeptical of traditional uh, gatekeepers of information in the media and in government and so on. And I, I'm coming to feel that one of the worst things that's happened in the social media information revolution is the the... I suppose the the growth of taking responsibility for your own opinion about things in an overboard way. So like the do your own research phenomenon. I mean, nobody knows more about the details of what happened on November 22nd, 1963, was it, than JFK conspiracy theorists, yeah. right? They've done all of the research. It's true. You know, you <laughs> they know a lot more about it than you do. They know exactly where the gun was pointing and all this. And a lot of what they know is probably correct. And from those nuggets of truth, they weave a castle in the sky of like all of these, um, well, these theories about exactly what happened and how they know the secret truth. Same with 9-11 truthers. You know, they can tell you the, ex you know, what material was Building 7 made out of. I don't fucking know. You don't know. I'll bet a 9-11 truther knows. Wait, hold so on. there's a lot, you know. This, do you, it's do like you think they really know the most on the whole? 
I I don't think that I would push back that against that because I think that when I hear conspiracy theorists, I, I it's they're almost like nerds about a specific aspect of the whole truth. But I don't find that they tend to ever really um, like look at, at the competing information and, and try to integrate it. I don't see a scholarly mindset there at all, actually. No, uh, that's kind of what I mean. Like, is the scholarly mm. mindset undermined by an undue fixation on detail? on doing one's own research, on finding out the truth. Because at some point, mm. the reality is that I don't have a scholarly mindset because I'm not an expert in any field. I'm just a conversationalist and someone who likes to draw out the opinions of smarter people than me or more expert people than me. Mm. And as a result, I relinquish my duty to do too much research into things and I outsource my opinions essentially to the people who do have a scholarly mindset. I think you but do have a, a scholarly people... mindset. Oh, really? What does that I mean do. then? I, I think I think scholarly mindset is a is like a domain general kind of mindset that's not you don't have to have the knowledge in the field to have one, um, and it's it's a whole method and way of of acquiring information. So you can have no scholarly, you can have no knowledge of um, of epidemiology or, or cardiology. Like I, I'm not an expert in cardiology, but I was just curious. Like, okay, what does the truth say about uh, myocarditis? Well, I just go on Google Scholar, and I opened up 150 tabs. Um, I looked at the abstracts. I, it's it's knowing how to interpret data. It's knowing how to interpret um, research. Um, See, I don't. Not, I don't. If I opened mm, 150 tabs about myocarditis, I would get okay. confused, and I would I would probably assume, and there would be enough in there that that led me astray that I would probably start thinking maybe there is something. In this, sure. I need the I need the insider to contextualize it for me and go, yeah. Although this piece says that there's actually a higher incidence, what you don't what you're not understanding is that that's offset by over here this epidemiological uh, thing that showed that blah de blah. And because the cohort was different here, that what you're not understanding is that in Israel they actually only gave it to these people. Like there's a lot of all that qualifying scaffolding that I would not be. Uh, aware of and and i i worry that sometimes the the details overwhelm the uh the the, the larger truth but you're thoughtful can i say that at least would you accept yes, a compliment definitely <laughs> because um because <laughs> when i think scholarly mindset maybe my example is too high level but i think that i associate with thoughtfulness which is simple um uh, understanding the nuances of a situation, understanding that the more data you can acquire about something, um, the more likely you are to get at the truth uh, and, and, and in an unbiased way of acquiring the data, not only trying to go down a rabbit hole that and find all the data that confirms your prior conception, but being like a robot about it, like just opening up the 150 tabs of whatever we're talking about, you know, and looking at every single perspective and looking into to try to think, well, what does the weight of the evidence really say? Not what I want it to be. But is it true, Scott, that you get most of your information about things by going directly to the data? I mean, like, is your opinion about whether 9-11 was an inside job driven by your, uh, you know, deep examination of data? Yeah. And my, so yeah, I, I went down that rabbit hole once. Really? And oh, okay. I did. I did. I also, and also, by the way, the JFK thing, I really went down that rabbit hole because I wanted to know what the truth was about that. Right. Um, but, but just the 9-11 thing. I think part of the acquiring the information is also seeking out experts. So uh, that's part of my point as well. Like, like right. what you yes, did was yeah. very thoughtful. I mean, it was scholarly, <laughs> dare I say, I don't know. Maybe you don't like that word, right. but, um, but 
you know, when I acquire as much information as possible about something, I, I'm also including that in that data set as much of what the experts think is the truth. As yeah, possible. right. Oh, certainly. I, look, I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm not averse to being called a scholar or a wizard or a king. Uh, I just don't want to. I just don't want to take any credit away from actual, you know, people who've gone through the hard yards of doing. Well, experts PhD are something. as different than scholars. I think some experts what actually could not have not be scholars. Could I pass as a king? You know. <laughs> No, no. Um, <laughs> but like 9-11 I mean, is a good example because yeah. say, you know, 9-11, I was completely open to the possibility that there was something fishy going on. And then there was one article in Popular Science magazine where they finally, you know, were like, okay, let's actually examine all of the conspiracy exactly. theories about this. And they exactly. got all the experts together and they wrote this big, huge feature piece. I think like took up the entire magazine. I read that one piece and then I was like, okay, I'm not going to think about this anymore. I'm not going to dive into the data. I'm not going to look up any yeah. papers. I'm not going to look up anything peer-reviewed. I trust popular science. I certainly trust all of the people who are writing here more than I trust the conspiracy theorists. So as far as I'm concerned, I've outsourced my thinking on this to people who know more than me. Yeah, I like what you're saying. And I think it's also important to really look at where the controversies lie with among the experts within the field. So for instance, if there's mm. pretty much a scientific consensus, um, I'm not, it's, it's those cases where I don't tend to... Uh, um, uh, need to look for much, much further. But there are some really nuanced debates within fields among experts, and that's what really interests me sometimes. Like I, I get really stimulated and, and really can go down that rabbit holes where it's not really um, agreed upon um, it, it, an interpretation of certain data. And then that does leave room open, not for conspiracy theories, but it leaves room open for for not having complete faith or uh, or trust in a particular interpretation by one ex one set of experts. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Um, let's loop back to social media because I, I definitely want to get your thoughts on it. Um, and we can either put this in the context of our sort of hierarchy of needs and work our way back to the basic uh, sort of punchline of your book about self-actualization and transcendence. Uh, or just con actually, let's start with the with the fast food analogy because you, you raised it and I think it's a good one about the, mm -hmm. I guess, the 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 speed of our gratification that social media facilitates and what how that's impacting the way that we think about our lives and the world i think that likes have become a sort a major source of power in people's life um can you imagine the power I, i'm not there yet but you know how there are some people like they can just say one sentence and they get and it immediately gets like 50,000 likes. Uh, <laughs> but it could be like a platitude. It can be like the dumbest statement. It could even be the same exact statement you wrote the day before, but you got like five likes. And then you're looking at the other person, you know, like you, you, you say something, you know, I'll say something like um, happiness emerges as a product of meaning. Right. It's like, you know, 10 likes. And then I'll see like uh, some really famous self-help guru or someone. They said happy, they, the same sentence and it's, it's uh, 50,000 likes. There's yeah. actually an existential question there. Now, if we, this is a philosophical question. Like, so is there, does their life have more value than mine? Because them saying the sentence has 50,000 likes, whereas mine has five. It's well, you'd it's need to know what people. Question, but you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah, yeah, you would yeah. need to know what people are doing or what people think they're doing when they're tapping the like, wouldn't you? <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, so like you know, to, to determine whether or not in some grand philosophical are they like sense, masturbating or something? Yeah. <laughs> While they type it, <laughs> is that what you're saying? <laughs> no. What are no. they doing exactly? No, Scott. That's not what I was saying, Scott. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I just, I just mean. So if when, if let's say, uh, you know, Bieber 
uh, tweet yeah. something. Uh, that's such yeah. an old man's reference for what young people like. He's probably forty years old by now. But uh, you know, <laughs> whoever, yeah, yeah. The, whoever the modern so day, whoever can you the imagine modern... Bieber at age eighty? By the way, can you imagine that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's still going to be cute. He's still, he'll still yeah. be adorable. I guess. So, yeah. uh, and I guess uh, so. yeah. but uh, whoever the modern day Bieber is, mm. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't even know who that is. Who is that? You're I don't even know with the young kids these days. Um, uh, Siri, who is the modern day Bieber? No, got nothing. Uh, anyway, so, I don't know. But anyway, let's pretend there's, there's probably, someone. I mean, I guess like Billie Eilish is the only person who I can think of who's actually young and is also really talented okay. and famous. Okay, let's talk about Billie um, Eilish. So let's yeah. say that Billie Eilish, uh, you know, tweets out, you know, happiness is, uh, is, is the, uh, is the Holy grail and gets 50,000 likes and you do that and, and you get right. five, five yeah. likes. The the question of whether or not you're worth less than Billy hinges for me on whether or not those people who are liking her tweet are voting for uh, a deep sense of gratitude, fulfillment, and perspective, mm-hmm. or whether they're just going, I like Billy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's part of it is that we have equated as part of the point I'm trying to make in a cheeky way, but is that we we're, we are equating likes on social media. So we're so we're so caught in the social status trap um, that we're starting to bound up our own sort of sense of self-worth to the extent to which people are like, yeah, I like that person on social media. And that's that's a huge problem. That's a huge mm-hmm. problem psychologically for the for the um, for the higher values and the higher needs to be uh, fulfilled it's it's what it is it's keeping us in that uh d of world of 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 d realm um as Mazo Mazo called it the deficiency realm of human existence um which doesn't allow us to kind of get out of that to to have growth options that may not get us many likes uh, on social media but in the real world we're growing right yeah what's the deficiency realm yeah so the deficiency realm is when you're making decisions in your life and you're living your life and, and doing certain actions in order to um, relieve some hole in your heart, <laughs> relieve some deficiency, whether it's a deficiency of, of connection, deficiency of self-esteem. And that's what I'm seeing a lot of is, is it's it, it, a lot of this stuff is for self-esteem motive. The likes are really, really uh, hit tapping into that dopamine circuit um, mm. or the need for security or feeling insecure. People talk a lot, Scott, about the hedonic treadmill. Well, people don't talk about it a lot, but it's a thing that people are aware of, right? You know, you get, everyone's aware that, you know, you get the new job and then yeah. that's that's fun and fulfilling for six months and then it becomes the new baseline normal and you need some new uh, achievement or some new trinket, some new distraction. My mum once uh, had a T-shirt that, uh, that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. Uh, and you know, that's a good example of the hedonic treadmill. Yeah. But as I hear you talk about self-esteem, I wonder if there's a self-esteem treadmill. Treadmill. You know, like, yeah, I think there is. And that's a brilliant, that's a brilliant phrase. Uh, You should coin that right now. Okay. Um, Trademarked. But it's yeah, your trademark, yeah, yeah, because yeah. you did coin it. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's <laughs> and I like that. Um, I I think that's what we're seeing a lot on on social media, and I think it explains the uh, the the reward value incentives for fighting on social media. Um, people are rewarded for the fighting. People are rewarded for taking it taking down uh, someone else for for viewing people as opponents for. Uh, for gathering your own tribe and rallying them, you know, to your cause. 
Um, that that's that's the reward structure. But what is what is the reward though? Like when we really get beneath it, the reward really is your own ego, um, and uh, that's mm. not the the healthiest, most growth oriented reward a human could have. This brings us to a, an article that I read of yours in Scientific American, diagnosing the ego as really the source of all our modern ills. Do you want to expand on that idea? Yeah, and I define the ego specifically because there's a lot of definitions in psychology of ego and a lot of definitions of self. Um, I view the ego is not the same thing as yourself. Um, uh, the ego is that part of yourself, uh, that, that sort of set of uh, values and uh, representations and actions that has an incessant need to depend, defend a positive image of yourself at all times. Um, and it, it, the ego has its own rationality to it. It has its own sort of structure. Um, and when you're totally just dancing in the world of your ego, um, a lot of things make sense to you, even though you might be blowing up the whole world. What are some examples of the way people do that? So many things can activate those ego defenses. I mean, even the slightest criticism, um, the slightest, uh, you know, you see, you see this, this doesn't only happen at the, the, the level of individuals. I wrote an article for the Atlantic about this on the collective narcissism. This happens at the collective level as well. So even the slightest uh, criticism of your, of your group, like any, coming from the inside, um, everyone will look at that person as disloyal. I see that as a really big, 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 big problem. Like you, like you're part of this this group, and you're like fighting for the cause, but you're like, well, hey guys, actually, I think you went too far there. They'd be like, you're out. <laughs> it's mm. not. It's not. They're not like they're defending it at all costs. Like we, we'd rather like kick the person out than to even entertain the possibility when we might not be perfect. And mm. that happens at the individual level as well. Um, if someone individually threatens us. The same, very same principles often apply at the individual level of narcissism with the group level of narcissism. Very same principles as I'm seeing uh, everywhere. Um, and at the individual level, it's like the very, you know, slightest sort of um, comment. And I'm not talking about trolling. I, I think we all, we all dislike trolls. But but even just someone who's uh, might write a very thoughtful comment like, well, that's an interesting point you make, but I disagree with it. You know, I think that X, Y, Z disagreement has now become uh, World War Three. Yeah. Although there's also this, I do, but Mm. there's also this parallel thing that you're reminding me of where there's an elevation of the virtue of civility above all else. The reason I'm pausing Mm. is because I'm a bit of a champion of disagreement. Disagreement. Yeah. Me too. Me too. You know, (laughs) you're right. I mean, (laughs) I was was amazed not to keep banging on about Joe Rogan, but when I I left the studio from doing Joe Rogan's show, I mentally, you know, asked myself in the Uber on the way to the airport. uh, Mm -hmm. uh, So, you know, have I said anything there that's going to blow up? You know, I've been, I've done his show six times before. I know what sort of catches fire and I didn't want to cause trouble for my employer. And I was, I scanned through, you know, a half dozen exchanges that could have, gone viral and i was like i think they're pretty much okay the exchange that ended up blowing up wasn't even one of those six Hmm. so at the time for me it did not strike me as being at all uh heated that he and i had butted heads a little bit about some arcane side effect of the vaccine in adolescence right Hmm. and then it took about a week for it to gain traction and to really explode and what what I found notable about the fact that that was the point, that was the moment that did go viral, was that it just showed how unwilling most people are just to have the basic modicum of self-respect to push back and disagree 
with other people. Like I, I actually sort of think there's too much civility and politeness. <laughs> like maybe it's my Australianness or something, but I just think we should be calling bullshit wow. a lot more in much more blunt and friendly ways. Like you know, not not demonizing the person, but just because I always say if you were at a pub and your friend said something that was you were pretty sure was nonsense that they'd read online, you wouldn't just polite you wouldn't just wait for them to stop talking, politely note your objection and then move on. You'd interrupt them and go, mate, that's bullshit. At least I would. Mm. Wouldn't you? No, and wouldn't that bullshit. be an appropriate way to to, to joust? <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's bullshit what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> totally bullshit. Um, no. Um, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, I'm trying to think of what it, like, again, like, that's my, like, what, what's an integration? Can multiple things be true at the same time? Can you point out that problem, but also point to the problem that, disagreement seems to uh, be equated with hate these days as well i feel like so that's feel sort like of what I'm, that's are, the same thing isn't it isn't, isn't that the, aren't those is the same thing yeah, like i'm saying that people mm. i'm saying that people are afraid that they're going to come across as being full of hate for simply intellectually disagreeing with someone i think Whereas, they're afraid of that because it, it that's what happens is that that's what's right. happening is right so so okay cool so i think we have it figured out here again uh, for a second so the i agree with you and but i think the reason why what's holding people back from being more like that like the friend at the pub is that we're seeing such a sensitivity these days that yeah. if you do act like that friend at the pub you immediately get treated like you are the devil and yeah. so I think that's that's we we are kind of we are agreeing on the same thing just at, from coming from different points. And then being excluded from the group, I like the fact that you said earlier, like this, the threat of 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 having someone say you're out, you're out of the tribe, is keenly felt at the moment. And what that then makes me think is that we've also got this ecosystem at the moment where the outsiders are themselves a tribe. Like you mentioned, Brett Weinstein, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's this whole. Uh, kind of group think going on between you know i i think of brett weinstein i think of majid nawaz i think of uh tim mm-hmm. pool i think of like people from all across the ideological spectrum dave rubin mm-hmm. who have come together in this like we're sort of edgy outsiders who don't take any bullshit from the mainstream and that itself has become a tribe that you can get excommunicated from as the likes of i suppose sam harris and i if we were ever in it have have become excluded from and so even the anti-tribe becomes its own tribe and even the non-conformist becomes the conformist it's also weird because you're right i mean it's all tribes like as much as i try to be like i am tribeless like if if you had to like force me i'd be i'd be i'd be in you and sam's tribe like, yeah that's right and now we're <laughs> in a little mini true. tribe that's been excluded from the <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. from the from the tribe that was excluded I mean, from the true. other tribes it's true i talked to sam about this very topic and yeah uh, it's very true it's very true and uh, even when i don't no matter how hard you try to not be in a tribe we we live in uh, we in a body a human we're humans <laughs> and mm. humans are tribal and it's almost incomprehensible for us to view people in any other way and that's a huge problem but i do think a big part of my mission and my project in in transcendence is is being able to harness um this kind of mindset that maslow called dichotomy transcendence it's not a phrase that ever caught on but uh, i think it's a really brilliant uh form of transcendence where we really are able to think outside of these kind of um, lots of these dichotomies we have in our society that can be transcended if we can just reach that kind of aspect of consciousness. How? Oh boy. 
the uh, the theory is is easier to roll off the tongue than the practical um, how to, but you know so much of it is uh, is is shift in perspective and 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 start it starts from within really it starts from ha- cultivating spiritual practices within your own self um, that you practice on a regular basis that that get you outside of that way of thinking I mean I'm a big fan of Sharon Salzberg like she's my spiritual mentor we have like you know we have like zoom chats and I like I ask her a million Who, questions. Who's Sharon Salzberg? Okay, Sharon Salzberg is a beautiful human. She she is the modern day uh uh loving kindness meditation uh you know really like the leader mm. in 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 that whole way of bringing that those principles from the Buddha to the west. Um and uh when I practice her loving kindness meditations or just uh read, read her writings and stuff, I I really do see the world very differently. I do uh, I find I'm much gentler. I'm much uh, more um, open to multiple perspectives and other ways of being. You know, so I really think that it's it takes a it takes practice. It's just like growth itself. You have to constantly choose the growth option. Love. You have to constantly choose love. And I don't. And again, I don't. I, I maybe sometimes I say love, and you might roll your eyes because you think we should have more disagreement in the world. But I don't. But again, that's dichotomy transcendence. Is I think we yeah, can no. have disagreement and love as a higher order construct. No, absolutely. In fact. Yeah. Um, yeah. Richard Dawkins says something that I that I always hold dear, which is that I, he says I respect you too much to pretend to respect your stupid opinions. Yeah, I, I very so much there's, a, that. Yeah. there's actually a love. That I, you know, if I don't give a shit about someone and I have total contempt for them, then I'll let their bullshit slide because it's yeah. not worth the fight. If I'm fighting with you, I, I am. That is an expression of love from my from my perspective. I care about you enough to to rescue you in a way intellectually like that or, or to engage with you. I want it, I want to hear your pushback against mine. Uh, you know, either I want to pull you out of a, an intellectual hole, the way that I would practice tough love on a drug addict to, because I loved them or I respect your point of view. And so I want to hear your ways of pushing back against mine in order to make mine better or pe- perhaps abandon mine. I think that's a, a comp- my sense of, of bullshit detection and pushback is entirely consistent with your conception of love. I agree. And I just want to say kudos to you for for creating the podcast you did and just making that even in the title of your podcast. You're like, look, this is what's going to happen here, folks. Yeah. <laughs> because, <laughs> because people, you're right. And I'm glad that someone did it, right? I'm, I am I didn't, do, you know, I have a different kind of, I'm all, my podcast is about something a little bit different, but I'm glad you did this. Like, I'm glad that this exists because we do live in this environment where it seems like everyone is like tiptoeing around each other. They're so scared of being canceled. <laughs> like mm. everyone's kind of like walking around in the circle of each other. No one's really engaging each other authentically. Um, and they're kind of scared to um, engage authentically. And when that's what we need more in the world, we need, uh, I would rather feel as though, and I do, and I personally do feel more respected when the person feels they can say anything to me. To me, that's mm. a sense of, I do receive that as a sense of love and respect. Mm. When I feel like someone's tiptoeing around me, like they're so scared of saying anything to me that might hurt my feelings, then to me, that kind of signals that like, they think I'm like really that weak, that or really like I can't deal with the truth or I can't, Yeah, there's something very distancing there. If you were emperor of the world and you could snap your fingers and make one big change, big magical change of some kind, what would it be? I, I think it would be to create a self-actualizing society where every human on this planet has the opportunities 
uh, to realize their full potential. And uh, okay, let me, re- let me rephrase yeah. the the question. Okay. Here's what you get when I give you. I'm your genie, okay. and I. But you ha- but yeah, exactly. Yours was too big and too non-specific. You know, like one goal- thing, Scott. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one thing. Yeah, you know how they say that goal setting. You know, when you set goals for yourself, it has to be specific and measurable. Uh, you know, don't give me this bullshit about world peace, uh, you know, Gandhi. Uh, <laughs> like, what's the okay. one? You know, you have to pull a lever, and something okay. has to happen in the world. What What is that thing that happens? What is the thing that happens? I feel like all my things are like um, so broad because um, I think about, you know, things I care deeply about in, in education as well, like like offering uh, accessible, high quality education to all. Is that is that too small or too big? Is that too big as well? Uh, almost, but I mean, you could yeah. probably whittle it whittle it down. I mean, you could say you know quadruple the funding of public education uh, in, in America, yeah. or you could yeah. or you could it could be something related to social media that we were talking about. You know, change the the algorithm, or, or or you know make Facebook never have happened, or it could be something about uh, you know the way that people you know prevent people from. But I think so much you know, of this insert a chip are... in. In I people's so brains much, that makes them not focus on the negative and i love you know, all those things express you're saying gratitude but, or whatever. but i think why i go back to education if that is the one if i only get one thing my, the point i want to try to make me you can help me like you know the business plan for it but because <laughs> i know i definitely you, you're you're talking to me like an investor right an investor yeah, like, that's yeah, yeah okay that's uh, great vision yeah. but what's the the profitability I'm your angel investor yeah, yeah, yeah i need yeah, to yeah. see the, the i sheet, know exactly the what you're asking me and i get it i get it uh and i just want to tell you where i'm coming from in my answer i think that if i had to do one thing the lever I would pull would start as young as possible because I think that uh, so many people are uneducated, so many people are so ignorant, uh, so many people are um, uh, not, they don't know how to think uh, in, a, in a way that has the, the, an, ounce of, an ounce of nuance. <laughs> and I think education is such an important lever. Mm. I'm 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 trying to think about how much nuance and critical thinking skills I got from the School. formal institutions of education. Yeah, that's versus... why I said high quality. That's why I said yeah. If we could offer, well, you're you're giving me the magic wand, so I'm yeah, saying you can have the magic. Yeah, yeah okay, all right, yeah, have high have a, quality have a... education for all opportunity and, and high yeah. quality being defined as encouraging critical thinking. No, not and necessarily. Training. No, no, no. I, I I would. I'm talking more like self actualization. So encouraging, um, uh, and I understand why you said what you said, because I, I did say, um, you know, that, uh, there's so much ignorance and so on, but I, but, I, but just like high quality education, I think would include the component of, of, uh, of critical thinking that would certainly be a component of it, but it would also signal for, for students that, that their own individual being matters because we talked earlier about how so much, uh, of the fighting and everything stems from that need to matter. If we could create an education system where people felt within the structure of human knowledge, they matter. I, I just think later on it would prevent so many problems. There you go. There's your spreadsheet. There's Yay. your investor manifesto. I'm in, I'm in, I'm investing. Okay. You've Whew. got the, you put me on the hundred, tri- you've got the hundred trillion dollars, Scott. Congratulations. <laughs> okay. Good. Handshake. Good. Uh, Scott, it's, uh, it's terrific to talk to you. I'm gonna, we could do this for three hours, but I have to go mm. and do a radio show. Uh, but perhaps Good we luck. can keep looping, looping back, um, uh, intermittently because there's an enormous amount to explore and I'm looking forward to being on, on your show in yeah. a few weeks. Can't wait to keep up the combo. 
Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.